before we jump into our time, just a quick update. Um, for Lent, we are fasting and praying for our next facility. It's a pretty awesome opportunity for our church to come together and to just seek the Lord's face. Uh, we're convinced that every good and meaningful work has its beginnings in prayer. And so um, we've known for quite a while that our time here in this place uh, has kind of been coming to an end. We, we've kind of pushed the limits on it. We've kind of outgrown it, and we need a bigger space. It's just the reality. We've been struggling with that for probably a year and a half, two years. And, um, and then recently found out they're going to redevelop this whole plot, and uh, next spring they're going to break ground on it. And so we have till the end of the year really to find something. It's a pretty daunting task. Um, it's just a crucial stage in the life of our church. We'll be seven years old in June as a church. And uh, it's just great to kind of come to that maybe season of completion and to start a new chapter. And so it's a big deal. It's one that, you know, we can't do by ourselves. So I want to invite you, if you're not uh, fasting and praying, um, I'm fasting on Fridays for this. I want to encourage you to, to join me at lunchtime to do that, or you can fast other times. Um, in case you missed the, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, we have on your seat a little guide about fasting, what it means, what it doesn't mean. And on the back, there's some prayer points. If you're like, I don't know how to pray for our church, right there, there's some good ways to start. There's also some space for you to fill out the needs of your family, your children, people who, who you know that need Jesus in a significant way. And uh, I'm just encouraging all of us to get on the same page of this, get off the bench and onto the field and to see what the Lord can do. What I know from experience is when God's people come together and humble themselves and when they fast and pray, mountains move. It's just kind of the story. So I want to encourage you to do that. Also, last week we introduced something new, which is um, these note cards, which is as you're praying, you might God might give you a verse, he might give you a specific prayer request, or he might give you a word of like just a really strong impression. And, um, and these note cards are for you to take, put in your Bible, and when that happens, or if that happens, to just write right on there. You can leave it anonymous, and you can turn it in at the Joy Box. We had maybe 20 of these turned in last week. It was really awesome. So um, if you've already done that, you know, take another card and continue. Or if you haven't done that, uh, seriously, take a card and ask the Lord to put something on your heart. It's pretty amazing. Um, what's awesome about this is even if you're not sure, like say you're like, I'm like 10% sure this is from the Lord. Well, if you put it right on a note card and don't put your name on it, there's really no harm, no foul. It's a very low risk. And, but if it is from the Lord, we get it, and we get to see kind of what God's speaking. So it's really neat to see kind of how God's working and speaking on your hearts, and, uh, there, and there's a theme that's developing. We'll share that in the coming weeks. So I encourage you to take this seriously and, um, you know, fill it out. It's great. I've got one. See, look at this. Folding this up, putting it in my Bible. Here we go. Uh, you know, you never know what people are going through. You could be sitting next to someone at lunch. You could be taking their order, and they could be having the worst day of their life. You never know it. It's, it's really easy. Um, it, it, one of the challenges I always point out, I'm not hating on social media, but one of the challenges is that social media is essentially a highlight reel. And often people compare their behind-the-scenes reality and their struggles and their pain and their failed dreams with everyone else's highlight reel, and you can very quickly come to this conclusion that your life doesn't match up with the standard that everyone is portraying. It's one of the, the, really, the dangers of Instagram, and it's like rewiring our minds in ways we don't even know yet. 
And uh, I have an account. I'm not hating on it. It's just, it's just a challenge is everyone has something we're going through. We all have dreams that have been broken. We all have people who have failed us. We all have um, losses and accidents and things that we're struggling through. We all do. And so um, we're, you're not alone in that. The, the question we are exploring this Lent, and it's really the theme and the, the, one of the big lessons in the Joseph story is, where is God when life hurts? I'd, I've met many people who have given up on God because something bad happened, and it rocked their world, and it, um, it uh, caused such a, a disequilibrium in their life and their faith that they couldn't wrap their heads around a good and loving God allowing something painful to happen. And it's, it's a huge cause of people leaving the faith and leaving the church in general. What I love about Joseph, and really, if you really read all the Bible, there's just the one thread that binds all 66 books together is pain and suffering and God in the midst of it. And so uh, what I like about Christ, what I like about um, the story of God and, and Christianity and the scriptures, it's just honest about when life kicks you in the teeth. And it gives us, if we're willing to listen, it gives us some, some lessons to, to help with that. Um, last week we said there's really three groups of people. And I, I hate to overgeneralize people, but there really are three groups. There's group one is people who are about to head into a season of trial. Group two is the people who are in the midst of a trial. And then there's group three who are coming out of a season of trial. And give them enough time, they'll soon be group one is going in. There's also like a fourth group who's just oblivious to the, the season they're in. But really, they're still one of those three. They just don't realize it. So... Uh, that might be a great question for you is to ask, which, where am I at? Am I going into a season of suffering and trial and testing? Am I in the middle of a storm? Or am I on my way out? It's, I like being on the way out, honestly. Uh, but I want to ask you another question this morning, and we'll follow up at the end of our time, is how do you view, cope with, persevere, weather, and even at some point, accept these storms of life. You can fight it all you want, you can ignore them all you want, but what does it look like to actually deal with it and cope with it and persevere and actually come to some point of uh, acceptance? I mean, that's like the final stage of grief is acceptance. You're going to go through all these stages of grief when you experience a loss of any kind, but the last one is just accepting it. And you really can't move on until you accept it. How do you accept suffering and pain? and temptations, and trials, and testing. Um, and I remember earlier in my faith, I struggled with this. I struggled with um, Christianity being a hard, narrow walk. I thought it was a highway, and it found out it's a dirt path with lots of twists and turns, and the word is a lamp to my feet. My problem is I want like a searchlight that goes a mile God gives me my next step often, and I was always struggling with that, and this, um, this older woman who was discipling me, she would always say, Drew, God will pull you through if you don't mind the pulling. And that's my problem. I mind the pulling. I don't want the pulling. I don't want to experience the pulling, but God will pull you through if you don't mind the pulling. So let's go to Genesis 37. We're going to finish that chapter today, and... Um, there's really a lot to unpack here, but Lent is six weeks, so we'll take our time. We've got four more weeks to deal with it, so we'll see how far we get. We're going to start in verse 12. 
Last week, we talked about Joseph's dreams. If you missed it, you can find it on our podcast. We really focused on calling and this calling that God had on Joseph's life in that. But yet, he's like kind of like Justin Bieber, really talented, but incredibly immature. Doesn't have the character or capacity to handle the calling. And today, we're, we're just going to kind of focus on the pain. Okay, so verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Israel is also another name for Jacob. Um, uh, whenever you see Jacob's name, the writer is kind of telling us, hey, this is Jacob being Jacob. This is Jacob, the manipulator. Whenever you see Israel, his new name, this is, this is kind of Israel um, kind of having a different things. But Israel and Jacob, same, same person. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the field, which is crazy, remember that. And the man asked him, so this man initiated this conversation with this Justin Bieber wandering the fields, and he says, what are you seeking? Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where, uh, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I've heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Just like the, what are the odds that this one guy would hear them and then initiate? It's pretty crazy. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. They will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, Reuben's the oldest, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. Um, but they do not lay a hand, uh, but do not lay a hand on him. And he and he might rescue him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, which is kind of this interesting foreshadowing to Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Um, earlier in the story, Joseph has a lot of words, very arrogant. But here, um, there's no words. We assume he's silent, and uh, he's stripped of his um, of his robe, and then he... They want to execute him, which is this great, like Jesus was silent before his accuser. They stripped him of his robes. In some interesting parallels there, Jesus is the better Joseph. This is a foreshadowing of what the Messiah would do. But the robe of many colors that he wore, they tore off him. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. It's hilarious, 25. Then they sat down to eat and have lunch. What do you do after you conspire to mercy? You eat lunch, apparently. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, Egypt is the superpower of the day. It's like the America that, you know, we think we're the superpower. Verse 26, then Judas said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to 
Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Another detail forwarding, uh, foreshadowing the betrayal of Jesus by uh, not Judah, but Judas. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This, is, uh, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Notice they don't say our brother. They say your son. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments. See, now his name is Jacob. They tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now this is incredible, okay? This is um, so interesting. He is, he believes, he's kind of deceived himself, really. He's, he's led himself to this false reality and believes Joseph is dead and is mourning. And then right, at, right next to that is contrasted this, this um, verse of grace. While his father is weeping, there is then this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And what we'll, we'll learn later in the story is, um, is that Potiphar likes Joseph and actually puts Joseph in charge of everything. So you got this interesting contrast with this father who believes his son has been killed, and then, but God's hand is still on Joseph and has strategically put him in a high official's household. And it's very interesting to see in the midst of all the pain, the pain of Joseph, the pain of Jacob, in the midst of the dysfunction of the brothers who want to kill their brother, yet in the midst of all that pain, God is still working in these ways that Jacob doesn't even see. It's pretty interesting. All right, I want to um, zoom out a little bit. And because um, the big question is, is like, really, God, how are you letting this happen? You might be asking that of yourself in your life. Something bad happens, and you could literally say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? So uh, we zoomed out a little bit last week. I'm going to zoom out a little bit more, and um, some great information that I uh, learned this week, which is uh, uh, you really got to understand the story of God and this arc of God to understand what Joseph is really about, because uh, God, God drafts this, uh, this awesome guy, right? You know, if it was a sports draft, he'd go number one. And it's, it's Abram. And God says, Abram, I, I'm going to use you. I've got this plan, and I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to use you. I'm going to bless all the people through you. And he changes his name to Abraham. Abraham is a pretty awesome dude, makes mistakes for sure. But if you were to make a list of the top 10 leaders in the Bible, or in the Old Testament at least, Abraham, it might be Moses 1, Abraham 2, or depending on your preference, Abraham 1, Moses 2. I mean, like... He's definitely in the top five of leaders, Abraham is. And Abraham's this great, great man of faith. And, uh, but he's not perfect, but you know, God can work with him. And then he has a son, Isaac. And Isaac, not too bad himself. And then Isaac has um, Esau and Jacob. And so I remember as a kid, like we say this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've heard that phrase, that, that Trinitarian phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I remember as a kid learning about Jacob and intuitively going, wait, we, we're putting the wrong character 
in that phrase. It should be Esau, not Jacob. You know, and we find out Jacob's a liar and a cheater and a schemer, a manipulator. He's a hustler. He's lying. He's he, he's he's trying to manufacture God's blessing. That's Jacob. You know, and his name means cheat, <laughs> deceiver. And so um, it's just weird that that we mention this cheat's name, this hustler, this con artist, so to speak, this swindler in the same phrase as Abraham and Isaac. You know. And it, it just seems like um, God could have picked a better, you know, genealogy to do this with. And then Jacob has, he has 12 children with four women, which is uh, where the scripture is descriptive and not prescriptive. Don't do that. Not good. Never works out. And, um, and Jacob passes on his sin to the brothers. We see this. We see even Joseph is a miniature version of Jacob. Jacob comes to his older brother and says, I want your blessing. I want what you got. I want your double portion. I want your birthright. It's what Jacob does to Esau. Joseph's doing the same thing. He's coming to his brothers. I, you're going to bow down to me. I'm going to be better than you. You know, there's you and there's me. And he's like 17, like number 11 in line. Joseph is just doing what Jacob is doing. He's just reprodu- he's, he's reproducing the sins of his father. Now, there's a, uh, I didn't know this, and um, uh, thanks to uh, Catherine, Catherine sent me something, and, and, I, and I learned this this week, it's amazing, is we have, I've often thought Joseph was the only one who got a coat, you know, but the reality is, is this custom that uh, all of the brothers would have gotten a coat. It had been cold, right? The father gives all of, all of his children coats, um, but, you know, the, the oldest son, who would have been Reuben here, he gets uh, the, the double responsibility. He's the oldest. Um, if the father passed away, it would be the oldest son's responsibility to take care of the family. So um, Reuben um, r- should have received double the responsibility and double the inheritance. And even though all of the children would get a coat as a symbol of that oldest son, you're the leader, that son would get a second coat. Right? Well, it's this second coat that Joseph gets. So it's not the fact that, like, the brothers aren't mad because Joseph has a coat and they're all shivering. Well, they got coats too. It's just that the second coat didn't go to Reuben, it went to Joseph. Joseph is the oldest son of Rachel, uh, Jacob's favorite wife. And Rachel had Benjamin and, and, and died while having Benjamin. And so J- Jacob has two favorite sons, Joseph, the oldest, and then Benjamin, because they're the, they're the only two um, reminders that he has of Rachel, who is his favorite wife. Okay? So when Jacob gives Joseph, the oldest son, the coat of many colors, what he's saying to the other ten brothers is that Rachel is better than your mom. And I consider Joseph to be my actual first son. And all of you are illegitimate. That's why they hate Joseph, because they also hate Jacob. Dad has rejected them and their mothers, which is what drives them to want to inflict so much pain, not just on Joseph, but also Jacob. If you love your dad, you would not do that. And so they're really reacting to the sin of Jacob, which 
leaves you to know this whole story of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. God, what? Like, just cut Jacob and draft a new person, you know? It's like the Giants did this with Odo Beckham Jr., if you know football. They're like, you're a problem. We're cutting you. Send you to the Browns. <laughs> this is the... God, why didn't you cut Jacob? He's the wrong, wrong guy in the story. It's amazing good news is that here's the deal. We're all Jacob. And in the midst of Jacob's mess and sin and dysfunction, God's still faithful to Jacob. God's still faithful to you. He's still faithful to me. When we blow it and we mess up, when we... Jacob, when we lie, when we manipulate, when we um, act out of fear, when we try to force God's blessing instead of waiting on his time and his way, when we do all these things and we, we do the same thing that Jacob did, God's still there. He's still faithful to you. He's still faithful to me. It's incredible. It's this uh, scandalous grace that we see in the story that in the midst of our junk, God still loves us. He's not leaving us. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. We see that gospel in Jacob and Joseph. There's nothing that those brothers and that family in Jacob and Joseph can do to make God say, ah, I'm going to cut you and go with someone else. He's still faithful. It's so amazing, so amazing. Where am I going with that? I don't know. That's not in the notes, but thank you, Jesus, for speaking. All right. Joseph does, or Jacob doesn't do any favors to Joseph because they already hate him for the dreams. And then he sends the brothers to go work and lets Jacob and Benjamin stay home. <laughs> and then he says, hey, uh, Joseph, go be the supervisor. Go, go see how they're doing and report back to me. Like, uh, who, wants to, who wants a supervisor who's 17? I don't want a supervisor who's 17, right? So uh, verse 12 and 14, not Jacob's best parenting moment. What's crazy about this, and we'll get to it, is uh, Reuben actually is acting like this firstborn leader, and he's actually trying to protect Joseph and Jacob, but Jacob isn't recognizing it. So you even got this other pain in the story of, I mean, can you imagine if you're Reuben, who seems to be a legit dude, I'm going to stop 10 of you from murdering our little brother. Like that's, that's some leadership. And yet dad has rejected him as the leader. And yet he's, that's crazy. Come on now. All right. And, uh, you know, verse 15, 17, we see this. Verse, uh, let's move on. We, let me see. We, we, we read uh, verses 18 through 22. Uh, Reuben wants to rescue um, they say we want to murder him, then they back it off and go, we want, let's settle him in slavery. Uh, under ancient Eastern law, it's still the same punishment because uh, slavery was viewed just as murder. Murder is taking someone's life instantly. Selling someone into slavery is taking their life slowly over time, but it's still taking life. And so it's not that they chose a lesser sin. They just chose a sin they could get paid for. That's kind of what they're doing there. Let's jump to... Um, um, The very end there, verses 29 to 36, there's, um, this is so interesting right here, okay. Now, if you, if you know Jacob's story, Jacob deceived his family with 
kind of a coat, so to speak, in the blood of a goat and led his family to fill in the gaps and deceive themselves. That's what Jacob did to Esau, to Isaac. Have you ever noticed that the brothers do the same thing to their dad? They took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped it and they sent it to dad and let dad come to his own conclusion. They're just repeating the sin of Jacob. There is a thing called generational sins. This is, you know, exhibit A. This kind of brings to a practical point. Uh, John Eldridge said, own your woundedness or risk inflicting it on others. Jacob doesn't own his woundedness. And he inflicts Joseph with it. He inflicts all the brothers with it. And in this ironic twist, they inflict that same wound back on him here. Because Jacob will not come to terms yet with his idolatrous heart and his deceptive nature. Where is God when life hurts? Here's where God is. God has not given up on Jacob. And God is allowing, this is like a, at least a 20-year process. In multiple decades, God allows unthinkable pain in this family because he hasn't given up on Jacob. And he's still working on Jacob. And he's still trying to bring healing to Jacob because he has this plan that he started with Abraham, which is, I, I desire to be a blessing to many nations through you which is what Joseph ends up doing in Genesis 50. When we get to the end of the story, we see Joseph starts living into the call on his family, which is providing incredible leadership to Egypt and Israel in a great time of famine. It takes God 20 more years in the story to still get to Jacob because he's stiff-necked and he's stubborn. <laughs> God has to wrestle with him all night. This is incredible. So incredible. Um, and so uh, I want to ask you, what, um, we all have pain. Have you uh, owned it yet? In a sense of not, not necessarily take responsibility for it, because there's probably many situations in this room where evil was done to you or the sins of others were put on you and you had no choice and it's not yours to own, and it's not your fault, okay? But what you do with it after is in your control. You can take it to the Lord and allow him to process it for you and heal you from it. And Jacob didn't do that. Jacob just stiff-necked, stubborn, nope. I'm going to white-knuckle this thing through. I don't need help. And he ends up inflicting it. So this, last, this question I, I asked you on the front end, I ask you again, how do you view, cope, persevere, weather, and at some point accept the storms of life? What's, what's crazy about this story is we know all the details. We know that Reuben tried to save Joseph, but Joseph doesn't know that. 
Joseph thinks all of his brothers were in on it. And he lived with that truth for over two decades. How awful is that? We know that that's not the truth. But if you're Joseph and you're the favorite, and while you're at Potiphar's house and while you're in prison and while you're forgotten and even while you're in power and you're the prime minister of Egypt, you still believed that dad wasn't coming for you and that all your brothers tried to kill you. Joseph doesn't know that Jacob thinks he's dead. And Joseph doesn't know that Reuben tried to save him. There's details in your pain that you don't know. There's details in my pain that I don't know. We often assume these things. Somewhere along the way, Joseph came to this point of saying, God, I know you will pull me through if I don't mind the pulling. We don't know where that happened, and it's probably a gradual um, transition in his life, but at some point, Joseph figured out there's more to the story that I don't know. And even though I don't understand God's hand in all this, I know God's hand is good, and he's going to work it out. For 20 years, he held on to that. We know this because at the end of the story, just spoiler alert, Genesis 50, verse 20, when Joseph confronts his brothers and he confronts his family and he has to really, we get this moment with what's Joseph going to do? Is he going to execute his brothers because he has the power to do that? Or is he going to forgive? He tells his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Somewhere along the way, Joseph realized there's other details I don't know. God is good. What man meant for evil, God's going to turn for the good. The bunk brother of Jesus, James, the half-brother. James 1 is a great chapter if this is hitting home for you. James 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. This is actually the first verse I ever memorized as a kid. It was this verse. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who who love him. It's a great chapter to ponder on and to chew on this week and for the rest of your life. James 1, it's great. There's a, there's a counterintuitive nature to that, that text. I'm going to ask you uh, two questions to chew on as we close and come to the table of pain and suffering where God does work the execution of Jesus for our good. What men meant for evil on Golgotha that day, God meant for good. Here's the questions. Do you have pain that needs to be processed with God and possibly with someone who's safe? The answer is yes. Do you want to? Are you, are you there yet? If you're not there yet, that's fine. 
God gives you space and time, but all the pain that's in our life, God is asking. And when, when you're ready to process it, to give it to him and to say, God, how can, how can you turn this for good? And you probably need some help. And we're here for you. We've, we, we do that a lot. The second is, where is God inviting you to rejoice in suffering? It's James 1. James, uh, James 1 says, consider your suffering an opportunity for great joy. We all have opportunities in our life or where we might be despising the suffering where James is saying, you should actually rejoice because you can benefit from it. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. What's God trying to scream at you right now? Where is the megaphone on right now? You can be like Jacob and just ignore it and see that pain inflicted on others and repeated. Or you can be like Joseph and, and, and walk through the valley of the shadow of death and know that God is with you and that he's there to protect you and that he actually sets a table in the presence of your enemies, which is what he did for Joseph. It's what he, God did for Jesus. It's what he does for you and I. It's an incredible measure of grace. Let's pray. Father, your ways are truly not our ways. And you write the story in ways we could never write. Lord, as as humans, we confess we prefer pleasure and comfort. We prefer speed and convenience. Your ways are not our ways. You work often slowly and unseen. You take on suffering. God, we need your help. But I know there are many listening who, like myself, have hurts, broken dreams, pain, disappointment, wounds that even at the mention of the name causes tears and stress and anxiety and fear. God, you are over all of those. You are over every situation. You are over every tragedy over every loss. You are over every instance of abuse. And God, while we know that those actions are never your will, we know it breaks your heart as well, that it grieves you when your children hurt one another, but that you are big enough to work it for the good of your kingdom for the blessing of all people. Reinforce our hearts wherever they need to be reinforced. Strengthen us where they need to be strengthened. For those who are at the end of their rope, God, meet them there. We need you, Jesus. We need your perspective. More than that, God, more than understanding, we need help trusting 
your hand when we don't see. Help us to trust you.